you heard earlier, this is what you will see every day, and you're much more likely to screw this up because you see it so often. So we will try to help you not screw it up. All right, we'll start off with the basic otitis externa, okay? This is basically a simple inflammation of the canal of the ear. Now, it, we think of it as infection because we treat it typically with, quote, antibiotic drops. But and it, while it technically is an infection, the inflammatory component of this is much more significant. And that if you can deal with the inflammatory component and improve the environment of the ear, whether or not you give specific antibiotics or not, it may actually go away without any specific antibiotic treatment. Typically, water facilitates the inflammation and the infection uh, because it breaks down the barriers. And, and typically, it is gram-negative. Pseudomonas is frequently common. There are a few other things that's worthy of note. One is fungal infections in the ear. Now, usually you think of this as somebody with HIV or diabetes, but you can uh, typically see this in healthy people. Uh, and the story goes something like this. You're a swimmer in high school. You are in the pool hours a day. You've had umpteen million bouts of this disease already. Every time you go to the doctor, you get cortisporin, otic drops. They put the drops in your ear and you feel fine. Well, why should I wait to get the disease? I'll just use the cortisporin over drops prophylactically. And of course, the cortisporin otic has steroids in it as well as the antibiotic. And so they keep putting it in and putting it in and putting it in. And eventually, because of the chronic steroid exposure, they can actually get a super infection with the fungal infection. And so you end up with a normal healthy person with a fungal infection in the ear. And almost always you can pinpoint this to the fact that these are swimmers in high school who've been using these drops inappropriately and end up with this kind of problem. So what do you do with the swimmer who has umpteen million bouts of this and wants to prevent it from happening? Anybody know? Very good. Very good. Hmm? Okay. Uh, that's a bit coarse, but you got the right idea. Vinegar. You want to change the pH and you want to dry it out. So after they get out of the pool, if they wash their ears out with just plain old vinegar, that will solve the problem and they don't have to then run the risk of developing these complications. Obviously, if we've all seen this, they come in, the ear canal gets swollen, it's very tender. If you pull on it, if you try to look inside it, they usually punch you because it hurts so much. Uh, it's, it's a pretty dramatic presentation and typically the eardrum is spared. You don't have to cover them for otitis media as well just because you can't see the eardrum. Don't worry about it. This tends to be typically a disease of the outer ear and that's all you have to worry about. Although it's nice to be able to do general irrigation, we're not going to do that in the emergency department. Basically what happens is we treat them with some sort of antibiotic drop. Uh, if the canal is swollen, you can get, we have these things, these wicks you can put in that will allow the antibiotic drops to get in. They typically are some sort of antibiotic plus steroids and uh, it usually works in about seven days. There is a catch though. The one we typically use first, it's called cortisporin otic. Um, there is a, about five to a percent of the population will develop a contact sensitivity to the antibiotic. And so you've got to warn people if you're going to use that, if a little is good, more is not necessarily better. If they're getting worse, stop the drops. Don't use the drops more. It will just make things worse and they'll get into a vicious cycle. So they shouldn't be any worse than when they see you. If they start the drops, they get worse, stop the drops. What do you use if you can't use cortisporin otic? And you could use Cipro, but even simpler than that, there's something called Vosol HC which is basically vinegar and hydrocortisone, no antibiotics. And it still works in many cases, which is what I mean. Even though it is technically an infection, it's the inflammation that's the biggest issue. If you can change the milieu, cause a low pH, dry it out, 
stop the inflammation, they'll oftentimes get better, even if you don't have a specific antibiotic that's just for that infection. Obviously, Cipro also works, and if they have money, you can use Cipro drops, but many of our patients don't, and so that's not an option. Vosol HC is where you can go. Uh, as far as what we are most concerned about is, is sort of the sequelae of some of these things. And while this is not very common, you will probably see this once in your career, malignant otitis externa. It's, it's unfortunate they picked that name because it's not malignant. If anything, it's indolent. The average time from the onset of the disease to the time of the diagnosis is about two months. So obviously, malignant is the wrong term. Malignant is the term they use because it's so painful and so destructive. This is really an osteomyelitis. It's an osteomyelitis of the skull. And that's really what you're dealing with. But it presents initially just like otitis externa. Matter of fact, when they initially present, you can't tell the difference. Well, how do you know? Because what will happen is if they develop this, is they will come back and come back and come back. And each time they say, the drops you gave me didn't work. So first you'll try Cotosporin Otic, then you'll try Cipro, then you'll try something else. And by the third time they're back, now's the time to start thinking, hmm, maybe this isn't otitis externa, maybe this is something else. And typically, these patients will be HIV positive, they'll be cancer patients, they'll be diabetic. They're not you and me. So you're not going to see this in patients like you and me. And even in these patients, the vast majority of them with otitis media have or with otitis externa, have otitis externa, not malignant otitis externa. But if you're seeing them for the third time and your previous two colleagues couldn't seem to get it right, there may be a reason for that, and it may not be because they blew it. It may be because they have something different like this particular entity. Again, it's an osteomyelitis. They're pretty, um, uh, they have a lot of inflammation, but they don't look that sick. It's not like they're going to come in with high fevers and toxicity. They're just going to complain of a lot of pain. The, the pain is the big hallmark for this disease. The sed rates are typically over 100. Aha, you knew I'd get a sed rate in there somewhere. CTs and MRIs are, are useful, and usually they require fairly extensive treatment, IV antibiotics for weeks, and surgical uh, resection. So um, it's, it's not a benign disease. The good news for us is they don't die from it right away, but you've got to keep in the back of your mind if this is their third visit in three weeks for the same disease, they're not getting any better. And oh, by the way, I have bad diabetes. Any questions about that? All right. Otitis media, this thing gets kicked around. It, you know, it's clear we don't understand this disease very well because when we do understand a disease, there's maybe a paragraph of it in, in a textbook. And when there's five or six pages about something in a textbook, you know we really don't get it very well because all we can do is describe it. Best example I can think of is syphilis. When no one understood what syphilis was, there were books written about syphilis. Today, if you open up Harrison's, it's probably a page and a half. So when we really do understand something, it gets a lot more concise. You know what you're doing. We're starting to get a better handle on this, but it's still somewhat evasive. It generally tends to be a disease of younger kids, but as an adult, I got a case of otitis media, so it can happen to anybody. The, the uh, demographics of the bacteria have changed. The vaccinations against uh, uh, um, streptomoniae, streptococcus pneumoniae have decreased the incidence, but have not eliminated it. H flu is much less, and then the rest of the actors are still present. So not surprising. The presentation, of course, is not also that surprising. They have pain. They may have some hearing loss. Um, hearing, if they're old enough to describe vertigo, that's great. Most of the time they don't have it. They just have pain and hearing loss. The, the best way to make the diagnosis is not with how it looks, but if there's loss of mobility of the eardrum. So I still, in my little my, uh, suitcase that I carry around, I have a little thing I can blow in to see if the eardrum moves or not, if I'm really not sure. The good news is it generally doesn't matter that much because the vast majority of these things are viral. 
Uh, this is a typical tympanic membrane. You can see a nice light reflex here. You can see the malleus, and everything looks pretty decent. Here, of course, is the classic eardrum that ate New York. It's all blown out. No uh, landmarks can be seen whatsoever. If you saw this, you probably would want to treat this with antibiotics. But as we know, we rarely see that. We usually see an ear that's maybe a little red, maybe a little swollen, not really sure, kid is crying, blah, 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 blah. So what do we do with them? Well, as we know, 60 to 85% of them are going to get better no matter what you do, including nothing. So you could sort of dance naked around the bedside. You could, you know, sing uh, three Hail Marys, whatever. It's, they're going to get better. So what you want to do first is reassure them, and this is a kid, again, that's otherwise doing well, is you can, you know, to, to treat their pain. So you want to use topical uh, anesthetics. You want to use Tylenol and Motrin and let the parents know that give them 48 hours and try this aggressive pain management and see if the kid doesn't get better. If the kid doesn't get better, you also send them home with a rescue antibiotic prescription which they can fill if the child doesn't get better. Now, of course, some people will immediately go to the store and fill the antibiotic. But amazingly, many parents won't because you can tell them about the diarrhea and if they're smart, they've already had the kid with diarrhea once because of the amoxicillin. Thank you very much. So they're going to basically listen to what you say and if the kid does get better in 48 hours, they won't fill the prescription and the kid will do well. Uh, these were the old prescriptions. This is what we used to think. I put this up for historical interest only. And now we sort of have, they're not really new anymore, but they're new-ish compared to you know, the, the tenure of my, my lifetime of doing this for 30 years. And so this is more the, the, what we're recommending today. If you have a, a kid that's over two years of age, otherwise healthy, not in daycare, we're now using five days instead of 10. Um, there are multiple studies, one most recently in JAMA, looked at the outcomes. And if you use the 10 days, they get better a little bit faster, but the overall outcome is the same. Whether you use 5 or 10 days, the same number get better in 21 days. So yeah, if, if really saving a day or two is really critical to you with more diarrhea, knock yourself out, but I don't do that anymore. I do the five days, and that's supported. That's the most rational use of resources, and it's less diarrhea. And in 21 days, as many of them are better as if you use the 10 days. So use five days. Uh, we talked about the rescue. In, in the kids that are, are, are probably not appropriate for this, it's this group here, kids less than two, kids with perf TMs, and who have chronic disease uh, or have other issues with, with, with their eardrums. These are not your best kids to try to do the five-day course on. But again, most of the kids we see have none of these things. They're just kids with maybe otitis media, maybe not, maybe viral, maybe not perfectly reasonable to do the wait and see, and then if they do, treat for five days. And this is the newer recommendations, the higher dose amoxicillin um, to be used for seven to ten days in the kids less than two or who've had antibiotics in the last three months or who are in daycare because those are at higher risk. Otherwise, five days should be sufficient. These are some of the alternative agents. You're pretty much familiar with all of this. No new rocket science here. The one thing I would like to reemphasize, which I don't think anybody here even does anymore, does anybody still use decongestants or antihistamines or steroids for otitis media? Thank God. It's finally died. All right, this used to be something that had come up all the time. People still did it. It was never shown to be efficacious. Multiple studies have shown it has no impact on outcome. We need to stop doing it. Looks like we have stopped doing it. Nobody else is doing it. That's good. Complications, not surprising. The thing we worry about most is meningitis. Um, mastoiditis is, you'll see it, albeit rarely. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and, and, but meningitis was the thing we worried most about. And again, in this era, it seems to be fairly rare. Uh, 
There are a couple of other things that come up about ear infections that don't involve us. We don't make these decisions, but we may see patients on it. And just so you know that it's not necessarily witchcraft, people who have recurrent otitis media, which is three episodes in six months, may be on prophylaxis. So if somebody comes in on that, people have argued that this is one thing to try to prevent these recurrences, besides the, the PE tubes. Uh, kids who get repeated bouts, who get treated and don't get better, may often end up with PE tubes. There's issues about... Um, they're hearing, 40 decibel hearing losses. I don't want to get into all of that right now, um, but there, just to be aware that there may be individuals who have been on either steroids or um, prophylactic antibiotics for various conditions that are not acute otitis media but are related to that. Speaking of which, the other thing we will sometimes see is otitis media with an effusion or serosotitis. This is basically somebody that comes in with at least two weeks of fluid behind the ear but no symptoms. They don't have any pain. They don't look sick. They may be in because uh, of a rash for something else and you have to look in their ears and, oh, by the way, this is what I see. Um, these are some of the predisposing factors. Not a big deal. Um, generally, it's not much of an emergency for us. The reason I bring this up is just because there has been concern that if this isn't treated effectively over time, they may have problems with hearing loss and uh, possibly developmental delay or language. That also recently has been studied and looked at, seems to be controversial. Hard to demonstrate this is actually going on. So this current recommendation, it's not clear if this is really truth or if this is Memorex. But there are probably physicians out there that still will be doing this. So again, if we see individuals with this diagnosis, we shouldn't be surprised to see them on long-term antibiotics or steroids. It's not for treatment of an acute process. It's for this serous otitis media that may or may not have anything to do with anything down the line. Some people believe it does. Obviously, this is what it looks like. It's not particularly red, but you can see bubbles and fluid behind the eardrum. All right, and this is the whole, there's all these rigmaroles of various things people do to try to get rid of it. Uh, just be aware that these things can, can uh, occur and it's not necessarily uh, witchcraft. Okay, mastoiditis. Um, this is something that has become extremely rare because of the antibiotic use uh, of treating otitis media, which is usually the most common predisposing factor. Um, the, we, in this era, the presentation of mastoiditis is more... Um, uh, heterogeneous than it used to be. The traditional treatment was if you had acute mastoiditis, they had fever, they were sick, they were admitted. Now we're seeing people that sort of can do that, but also don't or may have low-grade fever, don't look particularly ill, uh, but have the disease and what do you do with it. So with ENT support, it's not unreasonable to send these people home. And in fact, ENT does do this on a case-by-case -case basis. They'll evaluate the individual. Sometimes they'll bring them in. Sometimes they won't. And they'll treat them as outpatients. And that is reasonable based on the new sort of uh, epidemiology and natural history of this disease. This is a little kitty with acute mastoiditis. Uh, I've never seen this in my career. Um, the ones I've seen are, tend to be in adults. But if they read the textbook, this is what they get, this big mass behind their ears where the mastoid is. And if you get a, uh, uh, some plain films, you can see this. Now, I would not recommend getting plain films. Why is that? Because there isn't a radiologist alive on the planet today that can read one. These things have like gone the way of the dodo. And so if you ask a radiologist to read plain films of the mastoid, they're going to go, huh? How, what view do I get? How do I do this? Nobody, 
So they go right to CT scan. This is what everybody uses. And while this is a little blurry, you can see why they go right to the CT scan, because it gives you a lot more information. This is the normal mastoid on the right. This is the affected mastoid on the left. You can see that there's a lot of fluid, loss of the air cells, loss of the architecture. And that's what it looks like on a CT scan. And that's what most people will get today. Um, the treatment basically can be uh, surgical. They may require surgery. Um, but not everybody does that acutely. Uh, some will put them on IV antibiotics. Some will treat them with, now we have decent uh, PO antibiotics. They'll send them home and watch them. It's not something you can just send them out, like if they're homeless or something, and good luck with your follow-up. But if they're reasonable and uh, you know, th they can access, and somebody from ENT can keep track of them, it's reasonable to treat these people as outpatients. They don't all need to come in. Obviously, somebody who's toxic, febrile, vomiting, these are probably not good candidates to go home. Okay, next thing, labyrinthitis. This is one of the things everybody loves to say. They like the word. They just don't know what it means. Um, labyrinthitis is actually not just being dizzy. Okay, labyrinthitis applies to the labyrinth, which is both the vestibular apparatus and the cochlea, the two things together. Ergo, ipso facto, you need to see both dizziness or vertigo and some sort of hearing problem to have labyrinthitis. You got to affect the hearing and you got to affect balance. That's why it's called labyrinthitis. And if you see both, then you have that. And traditionally, labyrinthitis has been divided into four different categories, okay? The most common ones we see are what we call serosotitis. I'll get to that in a minute, but there are a couple of other ones you should be aware of. The first one is, is kind of a nasty actor. It's suppurative labyrinthitis. This is actually a bacterial infection. I've never seen this, but it's been reported. Uh, and they usually are fairly ill. It's a bacterial infection within the labyrinth, and it usually makes the people febrile and fairly toxic looking. They require IV antibiotics and frequently uh, hospitalization. And they oftentimes don't do well. They may end up with permanent deafness because, as you can imagine, pus is fairly destructive to these very delicate structures. And they often have significant sequelae. Fortunately, we don't see it very often. Another weird one is toxic labyrinthitis. And this is basically due to, it's usually antibiotics. It doesn't have to be, but it usually is. Can be diuretics. Uh, and, and basically, these are agents that are toxic to these cells. And usually they present initially with a tinnitus and a, the eventually a high frequency hearing loss. If you get that, this is more useful for people who are rotating through the in-services where using genomycin or tobamycin or something along those lines. They start to complain of high frequency hearing loss. You really want to be on top of this and stop the offending agent. If you stop the offending agent, they usually do pretty well. If you don't pick up on this, you run the risk of killing off both labyrinths. If you do that, not only do you make them deaf, or you can make them deaf, you can also produce a condition called oscillopsia, which is basically putting you inside one of those old video cameras for the rest of your life. Um, you can't, the reason that you, when you get up and you move around and I turn my head, I can remain focused on you all, is because my vestibular apparatus is very astute at keeping my eyes tracking where they ought to go. And if you knock that out, if you poison the labyrinth, so that you no longer have a functioning vestibular apparatus on either side of your head, you can't focus on your environment. Remember those old video cameras you used to carry on your shoulders, and every time someone would take a step, the video camera would do this? That's what happens to you for the rest of your life. You can't ever get up and walk across the room without walking into a wall, because you can't see anything. The best demonstration of this is if you take your finger and put it in front of your face like this, and you hold the finger still, move your head back and forth very rapidly. You can still focus on that finger very easily. Not a problem. Move it over here, not a problem. Over here, not a problem. Now, 
Hold your head still, taking the vestibular apparatus out of the picture, and move your finger back and forth and try to focus on it. Can't do it. That's what happens if you have ophthalmopsia. You end up doing this the rest of your life. You can't focus on anything because you've lost that ability to fine-tune your eyes. And the vestibular apparatus is much better at making your eyes go where they should than you are. So you want to pick up on this. Okay, um, serous labyrinthitis, that's what we generally see. It tends to be viral. Uh, they usually have some sort of prodrome. They may have uh, you know, a, a viral URI or influenza or something along those lines. They'll develop vertigo and hearing loss. Uh, and the, the general rule is it's, it's fairly constant. It's usually associated with these symptoms. And it will generally resolve on its own. There's not much. You can treat them symptomatically. Every once in a while, you may get some permanent impairment, but the general rule for this kind of thing is that they do better. Now, sometimes there isn't a clear-cut viral involvement, but you end up with this diagnosis because you think of all the other things and you rule them out eventually. So sometimes it's a diagnosis of exclusion. But the good news is, even if you don't get it right, if it looks like this, it's fairly benign. The last one is chronic labyrinthitis, and this generally has to do with some sort of destructive uh, physical uh, impairment of the uh, labyrinth, frequently by a cholesteatoma. It doesn't have to be, but frequently is. And this requires surgical intervention and repair. All right, now the treatment for this depends on the cause. Most of the time, the serous ones is basically just symptomatic. So you can use some sort of benzo. Di diazepam is what's classically been described, but you can use any benzo. They all work. Antihistamines like meclizine, reasonable antiemetics, you know, the usual stuff. If they have the uh, um, uh, uh, toxic labyrinthitis, then basically you want to stop the offending agent. Uh, if they have the suppurative labyrinthitis, you need IV antibiotics and generally admission. And then for the chronic labyrinthitis, surgical intervention will be needed to resect uh, and, and possibly do repairs. Uh, and, um, but that's you know, not our issue. That's going to be for ENT. But to understand that there's something that, that, that can be done for them uh, outside of, of uh, medical management. Yes? I recently had a patient who had been seen by an outside ENT with this. Um, she came in to see us because she was confused and she still had it. And they started her on a prednisone course. Um, do you know anything about it would know, it would depend on on what might be causing what in other words cholesteatomas are typically it's usually a destructive process so those won't respond necessarily to antibiotic or to uh, to steroids but there are other things that could conceivably be doing this some sort of uh, possible collagen vascular disease or something like that I don't know what her yeah. her process was. Yeah, because the virus that they have has an inflammatory response, and then they could have an autoimmune reaction, like a type 3 or... So this wasn't a chronic labyrinthitis, then? No, no, it was acute, and it was preceded by a URI. Oh, well, that's serious, yeah, that's serious labyrinthitis. Okay, that, I thought you were talking about chronic. Is, oh, I'm sorry. No, for serious labyrinthitis, yes, you I'm could... see just labyrinthitis and treatment. Right, for, for, right, right. For, for serious labyrinthitis, you know, it's, it's symptomatic, man, there's no... They're going to get better. You can use steroids. You can use antimatter. All of that stuff, you know. It's, but if you didn't, it's not like they're going to die. Um, but for, for instance, if you have toxic labyrinthitis, you don't stop the offending agent. They are going to uh, quote die. If you don't start IV antibiotics in somebody with separative laryngitis, they are going to have a problem. So those are things where you can't screw the pooch. In this one, uh, they, if you don't do it right, they may suffer longer. But generally speaking, their outcome is pretty good regardless of what you do. So even if you screwed it up, although they would suffer, 
some longer, ultimately their outcome is pretty decent. Yeah, I, I did a quick Google or whatever just a quick word about uh, peripheral versus central vertigo, because this comes up. This is some of the things we sort of get screwed on if we treat somebody for peripheral vertigo and it was really central. We don't want to miss this. So these are our, our general trends. Everybody can come up with a case they know of that didn't meet this. But in general, these are pretty accurate. People with peripheral vertigo, which makes you feel very badly, but usually has a better outcome, generally are fairly sudden in onset, fairly severe in their symptomatology. Excuse me, a lot of vomiting. Uh, they really don't feel well. They can tell you pretty much exactly what had happened because they were fine beforehand, and boom, now they're not, and they know what happened, uh, and frequently is worsened by changes in position. Central vertigo, which is more concerning, um, these individuals tend to come in and they'll, they'll complain of vertigo. So when does it start? Or when did it start? And they'll go, well, you know, let me think for a minute. Gosh, I'm trying to remember, when did this start? They don't have a nice start date because it's very subtle. It's, it's not like the stuff that goes on in the periphery that makes you really sick really quickly, like tumors and whatnot. So there's an insidious slow onset. So they tend to have more gradual onset. Their symptoms are mild. They oftentimes don't look toxic at all. Uh, and again, weeks or months sometimes uh, will be their presentation when they try to think back of how long they really had it. And the head position generally doesn't make much of an effect. Uh, so you shouldn't have too much trouble if you take all of these things into consideration, differentiating between a peripheral and central vertigo. All right, uh, other diseases that sort of get lumped into here, which involve the labyrinth but are not labyrinthitis, is Meniere's disease. This is essentially endolymphatic drops or sort of overproduction of endolymph within the system and causes symptoms of vertigo, uh, sensory neural hearing loss, and tinnitus. The tinnitus can be profound in, in days gone by. People used to uh, threaten suicide because the tinnitus was so pervasive and, and uh, distressing. Um, nowadays, it doesn't, we don't really get that far because for people who are really symptomatic, who fail everything else, you can do destructive surgery, especially if it's only on one side. But there are surgical procedures that people do before that to try to decrease the uh, pr um, pressure within the system and improve outcomes. But uh, acutely, if, if somebody has uh, Meniere's disease, what we do is we treat them uh, symptomatically. Uh, you can, and I'll get to that in a minute. Um, the only difference between this treatment and labyrinthitis for us generally tends to be uh, hydrochlorothiazide. Uh, using a, a, a low-dose diuretic seems to make them better. It doesn't cure the disease. They still have it, but it seems to help with the particular episode that they have. I think for us it's more important to be concerned with the differential to make sure we're not uh, misdiagnosing this. These are some of the other agents uh, or entities that can, pull, uh, that can mimic this. Uh, and obviously, a cerebellar infarct or diabetes or labyrinthitis is going to be different than Meniere's disease. We want to make sure we don't miss those. The treatment, as I alluded to, is essentially the same as labyrinthitis acutely from the medical side, except with the addition of hydrochlorothiazide. Surgical stuff, there's all kinds of uh, various procedures that people do from uh, doing the shunt to actually doing a, a vestibular neuronectomy if you have to because they failed everything else and they're going crazy. Uh, this is everybody's favorite ER diagnosis. We love it because we can do something about it. Benign positional vertigo. But in order to make this diagnosis, there's actually a fairly circumscribed 
clinical condition that has to be met in order to make this diagnosis. Uh, we pretty much now are, are, are convinced that this is, in fact, these otoliths that have been kicked loose that uh, end up falling into the posterior semicircular canal and making people goofy when they turn their heads. Um, it doesn't have to be due to trauma. A lot of cases, they'll give you no history of trauma at all. And, and the, the diagnostic criteria, what you have to have to make this diagnosis, is these three things, latency, adaptation, and fatigue. Latency means that they don't get dizzy as soon as they turn their head. There's a delay. So they're fine. They're sitting there. You're talking to them. Okay, turn your head. They turn their head. 1,001, 1,002, 1,003. Nothing's happening. Oh, oh, here it comes, here it comes, and now I'm dizzy. If they turn their head, oh, I'm dizzy immediately, that's... To, that you have to be very suspicious that that really is benign positional vertigo because there's got to be this latent phase of several seconds before they start to get dizzy. In addition, the dizziness should not last more than a minute. So they turn their head, 1,001, 1,002, oh, here it comes, here it comes. They're dizzy, they're dizzy, uh, going away, going away, going away. So within a minute, it's gone. If you keep doing it, eventually they fatigue out so that they turn their head and nothing happens. Now, nobody's going to do this because every time they turn their head, they puke. And they're not going to be very happy if you make them keep doing this. So this isn't something I expect you to do in the ED. But just to understand, if you continue to make them turn their head, make them turn their head, each episode would get shorter and shorter and shorter, and eventually it would stop completely. That's why the recommendation before the epi maneuver was exercise. If you put people out on a basketball court and make them play basketball, in about 15 minutes, they're not symptomatic anymore because they're constantly turning their head. And eventually, this thing fatigues out. So if you didn't do anything and just played basketball for 15 minutes, you would not be symptomatic any longer. So they're cured. Well, they're not cured. No. No, they're not. It just fatigues out. Later on, if they stop, settle down, it can recur. Right. It doesn't cure them. But they stop being symptomatic. OK. So that's, those are the three things that, that you really should need to see. And of course, because this involves just the vestibular apparatus, it's not labyrinthitis, it does not involve the cochlea, there should be no tinnitus, no hearing loss. It should not have that as a component. The treatment, okay, you could do the old school thing of exercise and benzos, or you can be new and improved and use the Epley maneuver, which looks something like this. Okay, so this is the sort of the semicircular canals here with the otoliths, and this is the patient uh, with this in the same position as the patient. This shows you this process uh, that we go through that's supposed to make these things feel better, and if we do it right, it works more times than not. So you start them, uh, uh, assuming this is the affected side with the head down, then you rotate the head to the other side with the re remaining supine. Oh, that's impressive. Then uh, you sort of, with their, with their head turned, you rotate them over. So they're now looking straight down. And then from this position, you sit them up. And that's supposed to reposition the otolith. And it works reasonably well. The thing you have to remember is you can't let them then lay down again, because it'll start the process. You'll, you'll then undo everything you've done. So they need to sit up for 10 minutes. And when they go home, they need to basically sleep at about a 45 degree angle or so for a couple of days because in order for this thing to really remain effective. But there are people that have done none of these things. They just they get up, they go home, they do whatever they want, and they're not symptomatic again either. So you don't, apparently don't have to do that, but that's the recommendation. OK, vestibular neonitis is another explanation for why people get dizzy, um, but um, don't uh, necessarily have any of the other diagnoses. It's sort of a diagnosis of exclusion. The hallmark for this is that they're dizzy all the time. 
There's, I mean, they're lying down, they're dizzy. They're standing up, they're dizzy. No matter where you turn them, they're dizzy. If you don't turn them, they're dizzy. They're dizzy, dizzy, dizzy all the time. And generally, this can last for days, sometimes even weeks. Um, they tend to have a fairly abrupt onset. Again, so you're thinking it's probably peripheral because of the onset. Um, then you can go through all these caloric responses, which we never do. Again, the hallmark being no hearing loss, no tinnitus, not involving the cochlea, um, and the, basically the treatment is symptomatic. There's nothing magical you can do for these people. And this was a slide I never got to finish, uh, and probably good reason because I don't think anybody cares about the patterns of nystagmus, and you'll not remember it even I told you, so just forget it. <laughs> all right. So, um, moving on to the ear, so much for, for, the, for the internal, now let's look at the external. Um, Subperichondrial hematomas, this is like basically the cauliflower ear, if you don't treat it right, the boxer's ear, etc., etc. You get whacked in the ear, and you get a hematoma that forms between the cartilage and the skin. There is no blood supply per se to the cartilage. It sort of gets it by approximation to everything else. And so if you develop a hematoma between the cartilage and the, the supplying fluid from the skin, you can get ischemia and then sort of poor healing and, and end up with malformed ears. So this is something that we try to do. Uh, you do aspirations and a compressive dressing. Um, the, you, the big mastoid dressing where you put something behind the ear, something in front of the ear, and then you compress it between the two to try to prevent the hematoma from reforming. In spite of that, oftentimes it does require a second aspiration because it will reform. Recently, they're doing things now where they actually suture two pieces of material together to squish the ear because putting the mastoid dressing on is not all that effective. People take it off. They, when they sleep, it comes off. It doesn't work very well. So now they sort of take two big pieces of gauze, put it on one side or the other, and like staple it together with, with sutures, and it squishes the stuff together. And the cartilage, amazingly enough, does well. You would think, you know, my thing was, oh my God, the cartilage is going to get infected. No, it doesn't. Don't ask me why, I don't know. Maybe you can tell me why it doesn't. But uh, it doesn't. We should throw an antibiotic. Ah, there you go. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's a foreign body, it's cartilage, you infect cartilage, or That's exactly my thoughts. And we've seen a couple of these people coming in now, basically, they just have these things in their ear and no, on, on no antibiotics, and they do pretty you well. You don't need that anymore. You could just throw sutures, through and through, through and through, and that, that should work. Especially if they're like um, kids who have MRCP mm -hmm. themselves. They'll pull it off, right. They, they pull it off, they're going to do more harm. You could just throw in sutures. Absorbable, chromic, and then in a mattress way, and then uh, it should heal fine. Yeah. 5%, 10% chance of recurrence. Okay. So whatever, the, the point being, you want to, I, I probably am not comfortable throwing stitches through the cartilage. <laughs> so I would probably try to put some sort of compressor dressing on it, have them follow them up with ENT. But you will see them, and we have seen them in the ED where the ENT people have done that, and we just remove the sutures, take the thing off, and send them on their way. <clears throat> and this is what it looks like. You get this big sort of bubbling. This is all hematoma under here. and needs to be drained, uh, and you can deal with that. Uh, uh, in, in an appropriate manner. Usually needle aspiration will, will suffice to begin with. You don't have to incise it. Yes? Just a quick question. I thought I read recently that the needle aspiration often doesn't work and you actually have to do a little incision. It depends. What, if they come in right away and there's still some clot in there, you might have to do that. Most people don't come in that fast. By the time they come in, it's usually fairly liquefied and usually with an, a large enough needle you can get it out. The, the biggest problem is you use a small needle and that's not going to work. 
So yeah, um, if you use a 20 gauge, you're, you're not going to get it. But an 18 or a 16, you should be able to get it if it's a day or two old. If they come in right away, no, you may have to actually incise it because you're going to, there still could be some clot present. Okay, external ear cellulitis. This is, again, something that um, in the old days before uh, ciprofloxacin and whatnot, we used to have to admit them for IV antibiotics. And sometimes we still do, depending on how bad it is and how immunocompromised they are. But, um, again, with reasonable ENT follow-up, um, these things can be managed as outpatients. Now, obviously, someone who comes in with a small cellulitis of their lobe, I, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the entire ear being inflamed, cellulitic, and spreading on to the, the, uh, the right side of the face. Those individuals traditionally have been admitted for IV antibiotics. Now, because the, we have some oral that, that's still effective against uh, Pseudomonas and whatnot, like Cipro, you can, with the ENT consultation, follow, send them out as, and with close follow-up. But if you don't have that, especially if there's some question about them keeping their follow-up, like if they have mental illness or they're uh, homeless or something, probably best to admit them for IV antibiotics. Tympanic membrane perforation. I think the only thing I really want to emphasize about this, from our perspective, is is if you, these things can be clues to what's going on to somebody. Now, obviously, if they've been digging their ears with a pencil, they perf their ear. It's not rocket science. No big deal. But uh, the two things that, that we will see, blast injuries, unless you're going to Iraq, I doubt that's going to be a big issue for you. But this one is. Many uh, of you will not end up in Southern California. You will end up somewhere else. And lightning strikes are common enough that you will see it in your lifetime if you don't live in Southern California. And oftentimes, what happens is people are simply found down and nobody knows what happened to them, and they can't tell you. I don't remember. I was minding my own business. The next thing I know, this person is shaking me, trying to wake me up, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm hurting, uh, my body aches, I don't know what happened to me. And like, were they assaulted? Did they have a seizure? And then you look in and both eardrums are blown out. That's a lightning strike. There's just very few things do that. Even assaults usually blow out one ear. Somebody whacks them with the right hand, it usually blows out one eardrum. But if you have bilateral tympanic membrane ruptures, the probability is they got zapped by lightning, especially in the right history. All right. So anyway, um, the, the thing to deal with this mostly is um, if it's a small perforation, they heal spontaneously. You don't really have to worry about it. Um, when you start getting concerned and when you want to see ENT is if there's also some other issues going on, like a facial nerve palsy or they're developing symptoms like vertigo or it's a really large perf. What's really large? Generally greater than 30%. So if somebody comes in there and their TM is like just hanging on by a thread, that's somebody that's probably going to need ENT. On the other hand, if they have a little tiny hole in it, That'll probably, especially if it's at the peripheral, probably heal spontaneously. Foreign bodies in the ear. The best thing I can tell you about this is, if at all possible, don't go after it. It's tempting. It calls your name. You feel compelled to remove it. It's almost irresistible, but try to resist. Because there's no immediate, emergent outcome that will happen if you don't take whatever it is in their ear out. Now, there's one exception, and that is the cockroach crawling around making them crazy, but you still don't have to take it out. You just have to kill it. And so if you, if you just use, where is it here? Do I have it here? Yes, mineral oil. That's the best thing to use. If you don't have mineral oil, lidocaine will work. It's not as effective, but it still will work. But mineral oil kills them dead every time. It's great. They'll love it, and they'll thank you for it. And after it stops moving, then they don't care anymore because they're fine. They don't feel anything. Just they've got a gooey ear, but they can live with it. Right, it doesn't generally, yeah, they can't, they can't go backwards, they can only go forwards, right. So, so, right. 
Right. So the, the problem with going after these things is that the likelihood of success is not very good, but the likelihood of completely tearing up their ear and making the ENT guy's job, which would have been a slam dunk easy, you know, 30 seconds I'm out, turning into an hour procedure is very great. So, you know, there are sometimes reasonable things. I have taken things out of people's ears uh, when it has been reasonable to assume that, that even I, as an emergency physician, can do this successfully. But I have also torn up people's ears really badly when I was young and foolish and went after all of these things. And I've learned what is already in the literature, and that is probably best to avoid this and just refer them out if you can. Now, granted, um, some people without insurance um, or who are homeless are not going to follow up. There may be times you want to try to do that, but it is, it is a lot harder than you think it's going to be, and your potential for doing damage is not small. So think very carefully before you do this. Of course, there are various things you can use, the alligator forceps in the right angle and putting the, the crazy glue on the applicator and trying to do it that way. Of course, the problem is you end up gluing whatever it is to their ear and not getting the foreign body out. And that's what I mean by making things worse. So, but there are these, all these crazy techniques. But, but just be advised that, that very talented, smart people who've come before you have learned the hard way that it's probably better to leave these alone if you possibly can and have somebody else who's got these super scopes and they have all kinds of fancy tools that can make this, you know, take this, do this in 30 seconds. It's really slick. Whereas if you screw it up, then they're in there for an hour trying to dig it all out and get the clot out and repair the laceration and all that other kind of stuff. All right. So we're now going to leave the ear and move into the nose. Okay. So ear, nose, throat will be coming next, as you might have intuited. All right. Anyway, so. This is something very common. Um, the only thing is, if you really want to help your patient, don't prescribe oral and decongestants because it doesn't work and it just makes them sleepy. This is the stuff you got to use. Topical anticholinergics, atrovent nasal spray. This stuff works really well, lasts for hours, doesn't make them drowsy, and they'll love you for it. They can go out and eat their food. Their nose doesn't run during the meal. People don't think they're doing cocaine. It's really great stuff. So if you have somebody that has a vasomotor rhinitis, and they, they need to go out on a date and they need to impress somebody, just give them uh, uh, atrovent nasal spray, they'll be fine. Okay, acute sinusitis. This is, this is like the great myth. Um, there has been more people who've probably gotten C. diff because somebody treated a viral sinusitis with antibiotics. Everybody comes in and says, I've got sinusitis, I need antibiotics. The vast majority of people we see, not that they see, that we see in the ED who have sinusitis do not have bacterial sinusitis. Ergo, giving them antibiotics doesn't do anything except give them C. diff. So try to sort of keep in mind looking at clinical diagnosis. The, the AHRQ has, has looked at this and basically said this is a clinical diagnosis. So these are the organisms that do this. They're gram for acute sinusitis, they tend to be gram positives, and they cause the kinds of things that you would expect from an acute infection. Um, uh, I don't want to talk about this. Uh, okay, purulent nasal discharge. Okay, they have pus in their nose. So when they blow their nose or when you look inside, you see pus. Okay, that's one thing. They're febrile. It's usually been going on for more than one or two days, and they don't have a cough and all this other stuff going with it. They'll have localized pain. Typically for the maxillary sinusitis, they'll have tooth pain. 
not just pressure. Pressure can happen for anything. That's just because there's a vacuum. doesn't mean there's a bacterial process going on. So most of the patients we see come in, they're saying, oh, my sinuses are killing me. I have a stuffy nose. And you look in their nose, there's nothing. They have no fever. They don't have tooth pain. They just have pain over the sinus. Give them steroid nasal sprays. Give them eye of newt. Give them wing of bat. I don't care. <laughs> just don't give them antibiotics. It's not going to help them. It's just going to select for resistant strains. Yeah, it's on the floor. Right. So, now, there is a, that, that's maxillary. Now, there, there's a couple of things, caveats, okay? The first one is frontal sinusitis. This is a little bit more challenging for us because if they really have frontal sinusitis, this is not so good because the posterior wall of the frontal sinus is not very robust. And if you have pus under pressure, it easily can erode through the posterior wall of the frontal sinus, and you know what's behind that, something you really don't want to see get infected. So if somebody, if you are concerned that there truly is a bacterial frontal sinusitis, antibiotics are definitely indicated and close follow-up is necessary because they don't start to get better in, 20, in 48 to 72 hours, then we may need to have an ENT come by and see them and drain the pus because that's the time frame for that stuff to start to erode the posterior wall of the frontal sinus. If they're feeling better in 48 to 72 hours, fine, just keep doing what you're doing. But if they're not, then you have to be much more concerned, follow up with a CT scan, and if there's still pus in there, and it looks like the posterior wall may be starting to erode, then they need to be trephinated and they need to be drained, and that's an ENT process. So, hmm? Pardon? Oh, yeah. I will give them Afrin. Uh, tell them to use it only once a day, not twice a day. Because if they do it twice a day, then they get really, they like it. And then when they stop it, they get a rebound phenomenon. Then they keep spraying it, blah, blah. But if you only use it once a day, you usually don't get that. And the other thing is to tell them to spray it right before dinner so they can taste their food. You spray your nose before dinner. You, you open up. You can breathe. You can taste your food. You feel happy. Afrin lasts about 8 to 10 hours. You can go to sleep. You can sleep with your nose clear. When you wake up, it's stuffed. But okay, you now had a decent night's sleep. You had a good meal last night. You really gut it through the day. <laughs> and then, you know, you come back to dinner. You spray your nose again. You start a little. But if you could do that indefinitely, and what happens as you get better, you'll find that you're not as stuffy at night and, and pretty sure you just stop using it. Whereas if you use it 24-7, you can, if, and some people do, they really get into this, they spray and they spray, then you get a vasomotor dilatation when the stuff wears off, their nose gets congested and they spray again and they end up with this sentinel loop, so to speak. Um, I'm running out of time here. Okay, adult sinusitis, well, we talked about that. Okay, so the, the basic thing we're looking at, pussy nasal discharge, poor response to decongestants, maxilloid toothache, um, if you don't do this right, uh, and you end up with um, something called POTS puffy tumor, that's a frontal sinusitis that is now eroded through the frontal wall of the sinus and you now have an abscess. Um, and that's, I've seen that once in my career. So again, what I'm trying to get at is maxillary sinusitis tends to be, even if it's bacterial, less of an immediate threat. Frontal sinusitis is more of an issue for us. We've got to make sure we're not dealing with that. If you have bacterial frontal sinusitis, a lot of bad things happen, so you, want to, you don't want to miss that. And these are the various views you can get if you get x-rays. Generally speaking, x-rays for routine management don't play a major role. Uh, for selected cases, they may, so I listed which ones you need to get here. Uh, the Waters view for maxillary sinusitis, the Caldwell and lateral views for the frontal sinusitis, and so it goes. Um, but, excuse me, um, essentially, it's, it, uh, for the first time we see them, otherwise healthy person, it tends to be a clinical diagnosis. 
And of course, this is the, the classic film with the maxillary sinusitis where you see opacification of the sinus filled with pus and uh, that individual, assuming there was fever and toothache and all the other clinical criteria, would uh, justify antibiotic treatment. The complications of this we don't see very often, but uh, you are more likely to see these complications in frontal sinusitis and um, sphenoid sinusitis. Again, for obvious reasons, because of their proximity to the brain. Treatment is not surprisingly antibiotics. Uh, we rarely see this. Uh, I suppose it can happen. Be advised that some people, especially with frontal sinusitis, may look fairly toxic, may require IV antibiotics. Sphenoid sinusitis the same way. Most of the time they won't. Um, you can use nasal steroids. There's some report in the literature that this may be effective. And again, uh, be concerned about frontal sinusitis not responding in two to three days and following up with uh, ENT that may need to do a trephination. Chronic sinusitis is something that, that generally is a problem for more ENT and less so for us because it really doesn't matter that much. This is stuff that's been going on for a long time. Uh, and it usually involves dysfunction of something called the osteomatal complex, which is part of the drainage apparatus of your nose and it just it gets scarred down and prevents normal drainage and these people end up with chronic inflammation and sinusitis. They tend to be more gram negatives. The treatment for this, okay, well, I don't want to, okay. To diagnose this, generally plain radiography is not helpful. CT scans are good, uh, but they have to be interpreted with caution because CT scans are so sensitive, they'll pick up all kinds of, of mucosal thickening that has nothing to do with sinusitis. So you have to be careful how you interpret this. Nasal endoscopy is actually the way to go. The ENT guys have gotten very good at this. Uh, and this is probably the, the, the best option because not only is it diagnostic, but they can also treat this if necessary. So this is really uh, something that's sort of an outpatient process. There really aren't much in the way of emergent conditions that result from this. But be advised that if you do decide to treat this, it tends to be a longer course of antibiotics. You're talking about three to six weeks at times. And usually uh, ENT is the ones that ends up catching the ball on this because it really, it's, it's not an acute process that if we just intervene and give them antibiotics, they'll be better like acute sinusitis. This is an indolent chronic process usually requiring some sort of more permanent intervention. And they're better at doing that uh, than we are. Uh, nosebleeds. Um, the biggest thing I'd like to say about this is there, oh, there's all kinds of reasons and things that predispose to this. Generally speaking, uh, nose picking and dry air are the things that cause most anterior nosebleeds. Um, although there are some issues that we look into, including hypertension, as it turns out, Hypertension is not a cause of an anterior epistaxis. Ergo, it, treating hypertension doesn't fix it. So even if they're hypertensive, treating the hypertension for an anterior nosebleed doesn't do anything. So don't worry about it. You can treat their hypertension if you think you need to treat their hypertension, but don't do it just because they have a nosebleed. It's not going to make any difference. That's different on the posterior side. If you have a posterior epistaxis, that is exacerbated by hypertension, and you can help get control of that if you lower their blood pressure if it's elevated. But it doesn't work well for anterior epistaxis, so there's no point in wasting your time doing that. Evaluation, all you really need on an anterior epistaxis is a hemoglobin. And why do we get a hemoglobin? Because these are frequently recurrent, as we all have experienced where they're back two and three times, because for whatever reason, they don't follow what we do. They pull the packing out, or whatever they do, they come back. And then eventually somebody gets a hemoglobin and their hemoglobin's 11. And we know that for a normal male it should be 14. Did it drop? 
or if, it's, if they have something else going on, it's been 11 for a while because of some other disease no one's picked up on yet. So if you have this in your armamentarium, you already know what their hemoglobin was yesterday, it was 11, today it's 11, and no matter what they say, and they'll frequently say, I was bleeding buckets of blood, I was just pouring out, and the hemoglobin was 11 yesterday, and it's 11 today, it obviously wasn't pouring out, and it gives you a better sense of what's going on. So just not because it helps you acutely, but because it'll help your colleagues the next day or two days later when they bounce back, as they frequently do. If you get a hemoglobin when they come in, it's, it's helpful because patients always tell you it's worse than it was. They'll always say, well, clots were pouring out, and it wasn't. But we won't know that, and this is a helpful piece of information to have. Of note, please do not get platelet counts. Please do not get PTTs and PTs on a routine anterior nosebleed. It's, it's worthless. Yes, it's useful to get on somebody who's on Coumadin. Yes, it's good to know on somebody who has thrombocytopenia. Yes, all that's useful. But for, for somebody like you who comes in with an anterior nosebleed, don't get a platelet count. Don't get a PT and a PTT. It's not necessary. Treatment is direct pressure. Usually what, what is reasonable is just to have them squeeze their nose for 20 minutes by the clock. That will usually work. Um, if not, you can put in, you can cauterize it if you can see it. Sometimes you need to put in an anterior pack. That's reasonable to do. Um, rarely, if ever, will you need to do this. Usually what happens is if, it, if the anterior pack fails, it's just because we didn't do a good enough job of putting it in. Uh, but most of the time, for a clear anterior nosebleed, this is about as far as you need to go. For, anterior, for posterior epistaxis, these can be nightmares. Oftentimes, the ENT people end up taking these people to the OR and ligating carotid arteries. Uh, it can be that bad. Uh, so this is something to take seriously. Obviously, if they're hypertensive, this is the one time it makes sense to try to treat this. These are the people who also you may want to start thinking about some of these other etiologies because most people with posterior nosebleeds don't have a posterior nosebleed just because. There's usually some other contributing factor. The treatment for this is harder. It requires a, a posterior compressive device. Nowadays, we do have these nasal blimps, which are kind of cool because they have a big anterior and posterior balloon component that usually can get control of this. But when all else fails, a Foley catheter is your friend. Um, they, if you push the, put the uh, catheter through the nose, blow up the balloon and pull back, you can get compression. And then you can pack from the front with the posterior uh, control from the back, and, and you'll get good results. Just be very careful you don't put the catheter in the trachea. I have had that happen to me once in my career. And it's not, I was at the foot of the bed, and the resident was at the head of the bed putting the catheter in and inadvertently passed the catheter, it was a trauma patient, uh, into the trachea and blew up the balloon. So, and I'm yelling at the bat, I'm at the foot of the bed, drop the balloon, drop the balloon, and they, they couldn't figure out what's going on because the patient couldn't talk. So finally I had to reach over and like grab the balloon out of there and cut the thing and then they, oh. Yeah, so it, it, it does happen, so be careful if you're going to do this. Uh, if you blow up the balloon, they stop talking. <laughs> you, know, you know where you, you ended up. No, because he started flailing all of a sudden. And we're trying to say, what's wrong, sir? Ah, ah. Yeah, it's like, and then it was obvious, you put it in the trachea. So we're trying to drop the balloon and she couldn't, she didn't get what was going on. So uh, finally, they reach and just grab it and cut it, and then they're like, so what are you doing? And then he was like, what are you trying to kill me? Yeah, actually, that was basically up here. Uh, and as you can, uh, this is, unfortunately, this is really a good agent to use. Cocaine, it both gets them numb. Yeah, everybody laughs, but it, 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 it works really well. It numbs up their nose, it shrinks the membranes, it stops the bleeding. It's good for what ails you. Um, and, and, and they're only high for about 10 minutes. 
but the stuff really, you know, you, the, the constrictor effect, everything else lasts for a long time. Right. So um, obviously you can use neosinephrine and other stuff, but it's unfortunate. This is really a great thing to use. If you take the, it's the Lido, would that be through a uh, vaporizer or whatever, the uh, atomizer? You, you, can, you can do that, or you can just basically sort of soak the, the gauze in there and put the gauze in there. Uh, and that's how we used to do the cocaine. You used to take these little pledgets, soak it in the cocaine, and just put it in the nose and have them squeeze their nose like this, and uh, it would work. But you can do that with the lidocaine with epi too. Neosinephrine, you can spray it with any any vasoconstrictor will work. All right. Okay. Uh, and the bottom line is, if you have to pack both sides of the nose with a posterior pack, it's kind of risky to send those people home. Nobody wants to admit them. ENT doesn't want them. Medicine doesn't want them. But if you've got bilateral posterior packs in, there's a real issue with, with the safety of that patient's airway. Uh, they can develop something called a, a nasal pulmonary reflux, where when you blow up these things under pressure in the back of their pharynx, they actually start to shunt past the lungs, and so they become hypoxic. So there's a, a reflex that you can stimulate, not in everybody, but in some people, and they will actually start to desaturate. So they usually need to be on O2. But also, there's real issues about clot formation and whatnot in the back of the airway if the, clot, if the packing comes loose and, and aspiration and, and occlusion of the airway. So if you have <coughs> bilateral packs in, it's probably risky to send these people home. I have seen ENT send unilateral posterior packs home. But bilateral ones would be dicey and probably better just to, to ensure the wrath of either ENT or, or medicine and admit them. Uh, then run the risk of sending those people home because if anything happens to them, you are dead meat. And usually, somebody with a posterior bleed is not an otherwise healthy person. There's usually something else going yeah. on. Yeah. Now, I, again, I have seen an individual who had a posterior bleed that ended up with a posterior pack that did go home, had good follow-up. I mean, they weren't they weren't a street person, but um, so there are those. But generally speaking, once you get bilateral packs in, you, you really shouldn't be sending those people home. All right, so any questions about anything so far? All right, so do we usually take a five-minute break before we do the second hour, so just keep going, or what? All right, five minutes, and then, because uh, I want to end at 10 to 4, whether we get done or not, okay? So I, my, my commitment is to finish at 10.